Hi, I'm Pastor Kyle Carlson, and you're listening to a message from Imprint Community Church in Northeast Baltimore. I pray that this message will encourage you in your walk with Jesus Christ. Visit us online at imprintcommunity.org and worship with us in person on Sundays at 10 a.m. at Seven Oaks Elementary School. Enjoy the message. Well, if you have a Bible nearby, I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 3. So throughout this Advent season, we've been looking at the curse that the world is under due to human sin and rebellion, which doesn't maybe feel very Christmassy, right? It feels a little heavy. But the truth is, Christmas deals with the heaviest, the weightiest, the deepest needs, the deepest burdens, the biggest problems that humanity faces. Christmas answers those needs. And so it only makes sense to speak about these weighty matters from God's Word when we come to the season of Advent. And I think a lot of times we kind of just sail through Christmas and we have the traditions that we grew up with and we do what our parents always did with us and we pass that on to our kids. And somewhere down the road you might go, I don't even know why we do that. I don't even know what that tradition means, but we've always done it and so we do it. Maybe you're only here tonight because it's just what you do on Christmas Eve. We don't normally go to church, but on Christmas Eve, we've always gone to church, and so here we are. I don't know if that's the case or not, but whatever the case, uh, I'm glad that you're here, and I think that God's Word has real truth and relevant needed truth for your life, and I hope that as we walk together through some passages in God's Word, you'll see that. So there's a line in one of the great Christmas hymns. We're actually going to sing it at the end of our service tonight. There's a line in one of the great Christmas hymns. The the hymn is Joy to the World, written by Isaac Watts. And it says this, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He, that is Jesus, comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And the truth is, it's not very difficult to see the curse at work around you, or at work in your own life, in your own family, in your own heart. The curse is everywhere. Evidences of the curse abound. In Genesis chapter 1, God made a beautiful, good world. In Genesis chapter 2, it zooms in and shows us how he created Adam, the first man, from dust. And then he formed Eve from a portion of his body. And so Adam and Eve were the first human beings. They were innocent. They were good. They reflected God's beauty and glory. They were in perfect relationship with God. They were in harmonious relationship with one another. They were faithful, careful stewards of a glad, responsive earth. But that didn't last very long. By Genesis chapter 3, everything is coming undone. And the one rule that God gave them, thou shalt not eat of this fruit of this tree, what are they going to do? They're going to eat that fruit. Of course they are. And so they rebel. They choose their own way. They reject God. And they say, I don't trust you. I don't believe that you're good. I think, in fact, the reason I'm not able, allowed to eat from this tree is because you're holding out on me. And so they choose their own way, and they listen to the voice of Satan, and they rebel against God. 
And so in Genesis 3, verse 14, God has come to Adam and Eve and the serpent as well, Satan in the form of the serpent, and he's responding now to their sin and their rebellion. And in the past few Sundays, we have walked through aspects of the curse that God puts upon the world and upon humanity because of their sin. We looked at the first aspect of that being the pain in childbearing, not just physical pain that women experience in the, the, the giving birth to children, but in the endless frustrating cycle of sinners giving birth to sinners, giving birth to sinners, and sin perpetuates itself. And then we looked at the aspect of the curse of broken relationships, where he said, your desire shall be for your husband, in other words, to control your husband, but he will rule over you. In other words, he will oppress and dominate, and that extends to all human relationships. There's brokenness, there's distrust, there's battle going on between human beings. Then we looked at the curse of a broken earth, an, a world that fights back instead of cooperating. It's fighting and work is hard and frustrating and painful. And then yesterday, we looked at the, the, the curse of death, probably the one that we feel the most uh, personally and deeply, the one that maybe we're more readily aware of, that he says, from dust you are taken and to dust you shall return. That's not the way it was supposed to be. That's the curse that we all bear. Tonight we're going to look at the final aspect of this curse, and it's actually after God's pronouncements. It's not really a part of God's pronounced curse upon sin, but it is his final response to sin. So in Genesis 3, if you look with me at verse 22, I'm going to read just the last couple of verses here in Genesis 3. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. God's final response to human rebellion is separation. It's casting them out. Where Adam and Eve had enjoyed perfect harmony and fellowship with God, now they are removed, even physically removed from his presence and from the place that he had created just for them. And so tonight we look at the curse of separation and how the coming of Jesus Christ answers that curse, answers that need. And really the way that we're going to go about this is to tell the story of three gardens. The story of three gardens. The first garden is right here at the beginning of the Bible, the Garden of Eden. You see, God placed Adam and Eve into this beautiful, fruitful land called Eden. Back in chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, as he's describing the land here, he says, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. 
And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Just continue reading some of this description. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. It is a rich, bountiful land flowing with water and with every fruit imaginable, trees and plants that are pleasant to the eye and good for food. And he says, work it, tend it, keep it. But I want to draw your attention in the middle of verse 9 there to a couple of trees that we see. Number one, the tree of life. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden. And the second one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We know that the tree of knowledge of good and evil is the one that got them into such trouble. It was that tree that God said, you can eat anything that you see except for the fruit of that one tree. Well, that's the tree that they gravitated toward naturally. But the tree of life is also in the midst of the garden. And apparently this tree would sustain their lives and their innocence and their eternal uh, fellowship with God and with one another and with creation. And so the tree was there. And we see that referenced in God's response to sin in chapter 3, verse 22, don't we? Where he says, lest he eat the fruit from the tree of life and live forever. And then he casts him out. So the fruit of the tree of life apparently was intended to sustain their ongoing life. And so as a response to their sin and rebellion, he removes their access to the tree of life so that they can't live forever anymore, right? Death is going to come, and he kicks them out of the garden. That is the basic reality of sin, folks. Sin separates us from God. Sin separates us from God, both in this judicial sense in which in our sin and rebellion, God acts justly and removes us and separates us because of that. Also, just functionally in your normal life, even as Christians in our relationship with God, when there is sin in our lives that is unchecked, unconfessed, undealt with, it messes things up. It messes up your relationship with God. Things get hard. Things feel cold. I don't even want to pray anymore. You know, it's been so long since I've been to church. I'd rather not even think about it. It's just easier not to, right? And so sin separates us from God. And the more we kind of dig those ruts, the harder it is to get out of those ditches and get back into fellowship with God. So sin separates us from God. But we see here in the case of Adam and Eve, they are literally physically removed, kicked out of the Garden of Eden. I remember some years ago when my kids were, uh, my older kids were very little, uh, we were visiting with some family and we have uh, an extended family member that we call Aunt Carolyn. And she wa- we were reading a story Bible together. And so the story Bible, of course, is telling the story of Adam and Eve and their sin, and, and we got to the point where it said that God, you know, kicked them out of the garden. And Aunt Carolyn said to my kids, I remember, she, she said, 
wasn't that so mean of God to kick them out of the garden? And I closed the book. I said, I think we're done reading this together. Um, And I did not explode or anything, and I was grateful for that. But the truth is, what I wanted to say was, this is not even close to as mean as God ought to have been in response to our sin. God is so holy and just and righteous that in light of our rebellion against him and our offense against his majesty, he is unbelievably patient and measured and merciful in his response. Even in kicking them out of the garden, we see mercy. Because what does he say to, to, what is God in this conversation among the three persons of the Trinity, right? He says, Man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Before, by the way, he wouldn't have known of evil existing, right? Because there wasn't evil. But now he knows good and evil. So just in case he would reach out his hand and take from the tree of life and live forever in this fallen, broken state, let's kick him out of the garden. Let's guard access to the tree of life so they can't get to it anymore. Even in the removal Even in the judgment of separation and their blocking of access to the tree of life, there is mercy here. God is patient with them, even in their sin and their rebellion. So he removes their access to the tree of life. Well, what is is the effect of this eviction from their home, from the Garden of Eden? It's that they are separated from God. They are separated from God, physically, spiritually, in every way. They are separated from God. Where Adam and Eve once had walked with God in the cool of the day, the book of Genesis says, now they labor and toil in sweat and tears outside of God's presence and blessing. And we experience the same predicament in our lives today. Why is life so hard? Why is it so hard to find peace Why is happiness so short-lived and so easily replaced with disappointment and sadness? Because we conduct much of our lives away from God's presence. That's not the way that it was intended to be. When God made Adam and Eve and he created a garden and he put them there, he intended fellowship and relationship and friendship and companionship as we work and live together and have dominion over the world. And human beings messed that up. We rebelled against God and now we live outside his presence. And so the very blessing and comfort and peace and joy that comes from a relationship with God, we look the other way. We turn away from him. So that's the story of the Garden of Eden. It's not a happy story. It starts well, it ends badly. But God is so kind and merciful to human beings, even in their sin, even in their offense against him, that he plans for healing. He plans for redemption, even in the midst of this brokenness. And so the second garden that we want to take a look at tonight is a garden called Gethsemane. You see, Jesus comes into the world. We're now very far down the road from the time of Adam and Eve. Many generations have lived and died. Prophets of old have spoken and 
foretold the coming of the, the Savior, the one who would set right what had been broken and redeem us from the curse. And now Jesus Christ has come, the Son of God, born of a woman, born as a man. And he's lived a sinless life, and he's healed and loved and taught and blessed people. And we're coming now to the very end of his life on earth. In fact, it's the night of his arrest. It's the night that Jesus is about to be betrayed and arrested and led to the cross. In Matthew chapter 26, if you have uh, the Bible, just flip right over there. Matthew, this is the first book in the New Testament, farther along in the Bible. Matthew chapter 26. Let's take a look at how Jesus behaves in the Garden of Gethsemane. Beginning in verse 36 of Matthew 26. Then Jesus went with them, that is his disciples, to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And so from there, Jesus is arrested and falsely charged of blasphemy and sedition and all these various things, and he ends up on a cross like a criminal even though he did no wrong. Whose sin is he dying for? Not his, ours. And so we see Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane under an incredible weight, a weight of temptation. He's asking his father, is there any other way? Can I avoid the cross? Can we somehow devise another way to save these sinners? Nevertheless, he says, your will be done. And of course, the will of the Father is for Jesus to bear the sins of his people on the cross. And Jesus bravely walks into that suffering, knowing what is ahead. And so in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus succeeds where we failed. Man gave in to temptation in a garden, and Jesus withstood temptation in Gethsemane. Man fell in Eden. Jesus stood 
in Gethsemane. He stands in our place. He takes up our cross. He bears our sin. Well, how does this answer the curse of separation? Namely, by bearing our cross, Jesus brings us back to God. 1 Peter 3.18 says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That's the purpose of the, the pain and the suffering and the burden that Jesus took upon himself on the cross. That he took our sins so that that could be removed and we could have a way back to God. Ephesians 2, 12 and 13 says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's a sad state of existence. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. There's a classic picture. Uh, I've actually got it to put up here for you. There's a classic picture that you might have seen that depicts this very reality. It shows on the one side human beings in their sin and brokenness and rebellion. And this vast chasm. And on the other side is God and his holiness and in his goodness and his righteousness and human beings have no way to get across this chasm back to God unless God intervenes in some way friends God has intervened and he's intervened in the person of Jesus Christ in the sinless life and the death on the cross where he bore our sins and his resurrection from the dead where he defeated death and hell and secured eternal life for us, he becomes the bridge that gets us across that chasm so that human beings can be reunited with God. We have a way back to God because Jesus Christ came into the world, stood in our place, and bore our sin. That's what the Christmas carol celebrates. We sang it just a few minutes ago. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. Until Jesus came to bear our curse, we were separated from God with no hope and without God in the world. And now because Christ stood in our place, because Christ endured the temptation in the Garden of Gethsemane, and because he went to the cross for our sins, we have a way back to God. The Bible says it's through simple trust. It comes through a recognition of our sin and rebellion against God and believing that Jesus Christ is the only way to bridge that gap. It's that simple. It is unbelievably simple. Sometimes we overcomplicate it with lots of other things or lots of good. We, we try to close this gap with lots of good deeds or with going to church or with giving to charity or with, you know, helping old ladies across the street or fill in the blank, right? Whatever kind of the, the thing is in your mind that this is what makes me a little bit better, right? We're trying to deal with our guilt, 
We just try to work a little bit harder, climb a little bit higher. Maybe I can make it. But the gap is too big. Our debt is too deep. We can't pay it off. So Jesus paid it off for us. That's what Christmas is all about. At Christmas, we celebrate that Jesus Christ took our sins and took our place so that through simple faith in him, we could get back to God. There's one more garden we got to talk about tonight, and that is a garden that we find in the new earth. This earth isn't going to last forever. I'm not sure if you know that. But God is going to recreate the earth. So go to the very last book of the Bible. We started in the first book of the Bible, and the first book of the Bible begins in a garden. So it's kind of fitting that the Bible ends with a different garden in view. In Revelation chapter 21, first the location of this garden, Revelation chapter 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So God has recreated the earth, now this new Jerusalem as the seat of Christ's authority and kingdom is coming down. And John says in verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. What's he saying? Eden is back. God created the world and human beings to live together in harmony, in fellowship, in love, in, in exercising dominion over a world that gladly responds and works together. We messed it up. We've spent thousands of years in turmoil and slavery. And Jesus came that first time 2,000 years ago to do what needed to be done to set things right. And he's coming back again. And he's going to set everything the way it's supposed to be. He's going to recreate the earth. He's going to establish his kingdom forever. And the dwelling place of God will be with men. Now, the very next chapter and the final chapter of Revelation, this tells us about the garden. Look at Revelation 22, starting in verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life. Remember that? The tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. The tree of life is back. We're in God's place again. His garden is replanted, and we get to live there and reign with him forever. 
That's where all of this is headed. The fellowship with God that was shattered in Eden will be forever restored in the new earth. And the great drama of all human history comes to its conclusion with God's people living in God's new earth under God's faithful, loving rule. And Jesus answers our curse of separation by bringing us back to God. If you're not a Christian, you might be thinking, separation from God doesn't sound that bad to me. I don't know him. I don't really care that I'm separated from him, right? You might have thoughts like that. It may be that you can't envision what life connected to God is even like because you've been separated from him for so long. You know, people always say absence makes the heart grow fonder, but I think it's just as true that sometimes absence makes the heart grow forgetful. Sometimes when we're away from somebody long enough, we, uh, the less we think about that person, the less we even remember what they're like, and eventually the less we really care that we're not together anymore. If time just goes on and goes on where we're not with that person, then I think we just kind of forget and we stop caring. If that describes your thoughts about God and your relationship with God, let me suggest something to you. You exist to know and love God. That's why you live. That's why God gave you life. If you don't know him and you're not sure that, why that's a bad thing, it's because you've never been connected to your true purpose. If God made you to know him and to love him and you never have, then your life is disconnected from the purpose for which it was given. You're not living into your true purpose. Jesus came into the world, God in human flesh, to bring his blessings into our brokenness. In other words, he came to restore your life's deepest purpose and your soul's most lasting joy, namely to know God and love God and to share in his joy forever. You can have that kind of a relationship with God by repenting of your sins and trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior. If you've never done that, if you've never placed your hope in Jesus, confessing your sin to him and inviting him to take control of your life and to give yourself to him, this Christmas could be the start of a new and eternal life for you. There are people in this room that would love to have that conversation with you. Talk to me, talk to any of our members. We would love to talk to you if that's true of you and you're curious about what that might look like. How do I take a step toward inviting God into my life? We would love to have that conversation. Friends, Christmas answers the bad news of our eviction from the Garden of Eden with an invitation to a new garden, a better garden. A garden where the tree of life grows free and wild and spreads its branches in every direction. And the fruit of this tree brings healing to our broken souls. God's Christmas gift to you is his son. John 3.16, a verse you know probably pretty know, know pretty well. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him will never perish but have eternal life.
In other words, he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. 